Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wool on us. Fighting and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. Uh, we talk a lot on the podcast and also on the site itself about various issues related to trust and safety and content moderation, uh, but often it feels like we're talking about them from the law and the policy side of things, and maybe less from the operational side. Uh, separately, uh, one of the points that we've tried to make over and over again, uh, as we've been writing about this stuff and talking about this stuff, is that so much of the public discussion around trust and safety really seems to revolve only around the biggest companies and how they handle it. So the narrative is mostly about how Facebook or Twitter or YouTube or Amazon handle things, and not about the millions of other websites, some small, some medium, and some fairly large, if not as large as those other companies, that all have to do some of this work as well. This can be anything from small forums to larger forums to specialized websites to group chats and even to blogs like TechDirt that have comments where we have to deal with some of these questions on our own. Uh, and of course, lately, there are a bunch of new entrants to consider as well. I think with the collapse of Twitter uh, over the last year or so, we're seeing a rise in all different kinds of alternatives, some of which are, are smaller and some of which are uh, federated or going to be federated and that where anyone can run an instance. So you have Mastodon and hopefully Blue Sky soon. And so this is leading to a, a whole bunch of questions around the tooling behind trust and safety and, and how that works. And I think this is actually a really kind of important evolution because I think historically uh, the trust and safety tools that were, were built were mostly just built from the ground up by each of the large companies kind of as they realized that they needed them. Uh, and for most of that time, the details of what they were doing and what kind of tools they used was secret. Uh, nobody was talking about it publicly. Each each company had their own setup uh, and their own way of doing things, and, and we're not talking about it publicly very much. Over the last few years, uh, as companies have been more willing to open up a little bit and share some of how their systems work and to discuss best practices. It's also opened up questions about how everyone else, all of those smaller entities that I talked about, can benefit from similar tools and similar setups. Um, we're starting to see third-party providers offering up tools and services to help, uh, but I Something that has been mostly missing from this space are open source solutions. Uh, earlier this year, I was a member of the Atlantic Council's Task Force for a Trustworthy Web, uh, which produced a really fascinating report about the future of trust and safety. Uh, one of the appendices to that report by Derek Slater and Betsy Maziello was all about building open source tools for trust and safety. So today on the podcast, we have Derek Slater here to talk about this issue of open source tooling for trust and safety. So Derek, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Mike. Great to be here. Cool. So 
I'm obviously, I mean, anyone who knows me and knows TechDirt knows that I'm, you know, a big fan of open source. Open source is a, you know, sort of a, a core concept that I think is really, really important in all sorts of the world. And I think that lots of things would be a lot better if they were open source. I, I, I'm a believer in all of that. But I'll, I'll, I'll start out by noting one of the things that I, I was concerned about. Um, and, you know, this came out a little bit in my head you know, you ran a session early on in the task force process about this, where, where we brought in a whole bunch of people to talk about, you know, tooling and operations on the trust and safety side. And you were talking about sort of this idea of, of open source trust and, trust and safety tooling and, and what would be needed. And I came out of that meeting more skeptical than I went into it around the, the issue of trust and, trust and safety open source tooling, in part because what what sort of occurred to me in that that session was that there's so many differences between different platforms and different approaches that i began to wonder could there be a single like would would an open source tooling setup even be useful because it it almost feels so specialized so to to kick off this discussion yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll throw that out as a as an idea and, and sort of a, i want to hear your thoughts on that yeah i mean that that was sort of that was among the questions we went into this exploring the you know genesis of this paper as part of the task force was to try and understand is there a there there could this be helpful um and with the insight uh, and the aspiration that the, the answer would be in the affirmative, but I think we found some place where it would, but more with the question of why isn't this happening, right? If open mm. source is so much a part of so much other software development um, and it could have the benefit here, what are the barriers? Could they be overcome? And, you know, what came, you know, to the, to the fore as part of this was sort of, you need to break down trust and safety into all of its component parts to start to see where, where is open useful? Not a silver bullet, but useful. And where is it less useful or needs to be tailored or thought of differently? And so, you know, you started to do that at the front of the podcast of like, you know, the part of trust and safety that's most on the surface to people is the design of policies and, you know, the individualized decisions of the staying up, going down, getting recommended, getting deprioritized and so on and so forth. Um, Underneath that, though, is a whole bunch of, as you said, the infrastructure of tooling that goes in to make those decisions. Mm -hmm. Some of that tooling is just um, is more real. You know, you can think of as core infrastructure of and uh, sort of logistics, much more mm -hmm. about logistics. So how do you sort of flag that? OK, this is a thing we need to review. Who does mm -hmm. that thing go to? How do we know when it's done? When it's when we've made a decision, how does that get recorded? Um, and so on and so forth. And so we sort of broke out, and that's part of what we got through in that session that you were at, breaking out the, the sort of the interactive cycle of trust and safety between detection, right? Detecting, is this something that, um, you know, what is, what, what is this piece of content or behavior? Mm -hmm. um, then confirmation and enforcement, that is taking an action, whether automatically or manually, to decide what to do with that piece of content which can be taking up or leaving down, but also everything in, uh, uh, in between um, or taking down, leaving up, I should say, then sort of measure the measurement and infrastructure to log that decision, which is really important because to make better detection systems and better you know, infrastructure over time, you need to measure what you're doing. That's the only way to improve. Mm -hmm. And finally, transparency, which is 
important, I think, for many companies uh, in terms of the relationship with their users, um, but increasingly from a regulatory perspective, right? How are you going to report out to a regulator, a government, other third-party oversight bodies to say, this is what we're doing and here's how you can check our, our homework. Um, and I think I'd say particularly as that regulatory picture comes to the fore, um, access to tooling becomes even more of sort of a need to have um, mm -hmm. and a barrier to entry, right? It's like, on the one hand, you can imagine out-of-the-box tools to just generate a transparency report, but as you were saying, it needs to be tailored to every service. So if everybody right. has to build their own, um, you know, that's tough. So I think then to really get back to your question, we broke the sort of the utility down in, in different ways. We're open source. There was sort of the lowest hanging fruit was that core, what I call content agnostic infrastructure, which is to say the, you know, the, the tools to simply show to a reviewer, um, you know, here's the piece of content and this is what the automated system thinks about it. What action should we take? Um, or to have automated systems like rules engines that say, based on the probability that the automated system spat out, let's triage and take these actions. Those are not, you know, contingent on uh, sort of knowing what specific hate speech policy or harassment policy or what whatnot that you have. Um, it's it's contact also you need it regardless. Same with sort of a logging infrastructure and a transparency reporting infrastructure. Mm -hmm. When it comes to detection, there are also content agnostic elements you know, detecting, okay, we took this thing down. Um, here is a duplicate or a near duplicate of that same thing. You know, that has to do with the content, but the decision is sort of already based on pre-existing material. Um, and those sort of hashing and hash matching tools can be widely available. Where things get trickier is the content specific parts of it, building a classifier for hate speech, because that needs to be tuned to your specific policies as a service provider. There's no one size fits all. Um, there are still, there are things you can do there that collectively, um, but it becomes a governance challenge as much as a technical challenge. How are you going to trust the entity that developed a hate speech classifier to have made good decisions or decisions in line with your right. values about what is hate speech? And, uh, and, you know, how can you trust the data they trained on and so on and so forth? So, you know, we got, got sort of more of a, um, a spectrum of utility and, and intervention points. I mean, you know, one of the things that's that struck me originally, and and I think some of what you just said sort of explains the differences. You know, how how much of this is different from just like, you know, customer support software, right? I mean, you have like, you know, Zendesk style like case management, you know, user feedback, user complaints, uh, those kinds of things. And there was a part of me that was just wondering, and you have open, you do have an open source community there. There are a bunch of sort of CRM type tools that are open source, or there's like, you know, hybrid models of open source plus service provider. Um, and so part of me was also wondering, like, is it, you know, is it just an extension of that? Or is it a totally separate category of, of software? Uh, perhaps both. And we sort we looked at this from two perspectives. So one was sort of thinking about and listening to the life cycle of people who are, you know, building a, a company um, mid-stage or at a large company, everything in between, and hearing about their process of starting tooling. And as you suggest, you know, most services when they are starting out, um, they use something like Zendesk or Jira or something like that 
as a ticketing tool. So when right. you know a user says, "Hey, this is violative content," it goes into that ticketing system and so on. Um, those tools, from what we heard from the participants, and, and this came from both the workshop you were at, a number of other workshops, interviews, and other sort of research we did in this in this area. Um, you know, that was sort of, it always felt sort of like kludgy. Like it was the, <laughs> yeah. it was what startups use because it was the thing they could just pull off the shelf and it was cheap and easy, right. but it's not really fit for the purpose of cust- uh, of trust and safety, particularly when you look at it beyond the, the sort of the realm of customer service and more in the realm of community engagement and organizing and right. relations. Um, it's like, it's really ill fit for purpose there. And sure, you, there were open source ones too, but also not really... Um, fit for purpose. As companies or services mature, they tend to then turn to, you know, there are a bunch of vendors in the space. That was the other thing we were asked and pushed on is like, well, is this really necessary if you can go to ActiveFence or Spectrum Labs or fill in the blank? Um, I mean, a a couple things came to the surface there. Um, One was, well, still, those are for pay services. And wouldn't it be great if there was something cheaper for that really core infrastructure. I mean, again, that's where open source thrives. Like Apache, Linux, you have this baseline that you can deploy. And then to tailor it for your use case, usability, and so on, you generally work with, you know, I don't know, Red Hat or some other providers building on top. So, you know, you can imagine this evolving where some things are open source, but the service providers are providing on top. In any event, what we heard was, yes, these service providers can are very helpful. You know, we work with them, and even the big companies often will contract with some of the other specialized providers yeah. to get their, um, you know, to get you know complementary services. The challenge is particularly for newer folks, smaller folks, um, is both cost, and then they have to then they're dependent right on some third party. Right. Um, so that means that third party could raise the prices at any time. <laughs> they could go out of business they could get acquired. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's something that we, we've heard in, in, in our research. You know, one example was this company, Smite, that makes an anti-abuse system, was purchased mm-hmm. by Twitter. That tool then went off the market. So everybody who was reliant on it had to scramble to figure out what to do next. Um, we, you know, on our very cursory review, as many of a third of the providers in this space, the trust and safety service providers, uh, tooling providers, um, were acquired over the last you know few years, um, so in a, sort of a concentrating space, that sort of makes sense that you would get some economies of scale. Um, mm-hmm. And we even saw that recently. I mean, um, you know, two of the biggest providers, Active Fence and Spectrum Labs, I believe just merged last week. Um, yeah, not necessarily a bad thing. It's not like they're turning off their customers, right. but um, to the extent that market gets more concentrated and you are dependent on those service providers, it, it leaves a, it leaves you in a vulnerable position. Right. So, um, you know, and I don't, and to be clear, I don't foresee a situation where open source sort of eradicates that those, you know, competitive private providers, those for-profit services, just in the same way that open source hasn't eradicated them in other markets. You, you will still have them. They'll just be providing services on top of the baseline. Right. Um, so that's where, you know, from what we heard, there would be a lot of utility for at least getting started, getting off the ground and making sure you weren't locked in and you weren't stuck. Um, just to raise it, the other perspective we thought about was there are places where the market might simply fail. 
because there isn't strong commercial incentives to, you know, build classifiers around, you know, less uh, popular languages, so to speak, you know, from the um, the majority world. Uh, you know, maybe there hasn't been a hate speech classifier developed in, in a particular language that is useful or that is provided. So could foundations, nonprofits, others help collaborate to fill that fill that gap? Um, so, I, you know, I think it's both the, the lock-in and addressing that market failure are two of the key possible benefits. Yeah, I mean, I guess that was the other thing that I was I was wondering too was was you know between this issue of like the service providers who are who are on the market and like the open source you know and certainly you know a lot of times if people view the trust and safety side as kind of core to their business which you know some companies do some companies certainly don't um, but if they do I think you know being able to build off of an open source tool and and have that control and being able to you know keep that closer. Um, and you know, and, and to themselves is probably something that they see as as really valuable. Um, but there is a part of me that that wonders. You know, I'm I'm you know I, I think you were sort of saying this, so I'm only kind of repeating what you're saying. It's like, you know, I think I think there's room for both of those in the market, and we'll sort of see how that plays out. And it'll be interesting, you know, interesting to kind of watch and see. I I am. Yeah. I am kind of. Yeah, I mean, just yeah. to, to follow on that, just yeah, I think you're right. Like, just as in other things, open source is not going to eradicate the commercial market. It provides a baseline of infrastructure that then others complement with other services. Right. And I think we could see the same here. Um, and and I mean, I do wonder too if, like, you know, certainly with with other open source tools that are out there and i'm thinking like in the crm space you do have some that are sort of both they offer the tool as an open source product but then they also offer a service they, they act as a service provider for people who don't want to have to you know install and manage it themselves and so i could certainly see that kind of model where you would have a service provider that also happens to offer their tools up as open source if people want to you know download and install their their own version of it um i don't know if that if any of the current companies in the trust and safety tooling or service space do that? Do you know of any? Yeah, I mean, so in our research, um, you know, yeah, it's, it's it's important to say like there are already open tools here that are available and useful, not just in the CRM space. Um, and you can sort of break this up, you know, in the detection space, you can go on a site like GitHub or Hugging mm -hmm. Face um, and find lots of data sets that are geared towards building relevant trust and safety. You know, here's a hate speech data right. set. Um, again, if you're going to use that, you have to trust that it was how it was right. curated and that it aligns with your values, but it's a place where you can start. Similarly, you can find tons of classifiers available. Uh, you know, I think there's sort of a gradation of the utility, um, at least among the participants we had in these interviews and workshops. So for instance, Yahoo, I think a long time ago now, released their you know, not safe for work NSFW tool, primarily about right. porn. You know, that still, you know, very useful to lots of different people as they're getting going, not, you know, as you scale up and you want to be, you want to perfect things more and tailor it to your, your service. But as a starting point, because porn, the skin tone that in porn is a little easier to detect. It's when you start to get to things like hate speech or harassment right. that it gets a little bit trickier, but there are a bunch of tools. There are also, there are companies that are trying to differentiate themselves in this way. So Unitary AI um, is a company that we 
came upon that is a startup. They're contributing classifiers to the market. They, they've been, you know, sort of saying prominent in putting forth open source solutions. Mm -hmm. There are also more mature companies that have contributed. Um, the social media platform Bumble mm -hmm. released a tool for um, what they call, you know, lewd photo detection, which I take as sort of a, a you know, broader uh, than porn. Um, but, you know, I think we saw lots of different examples, less so in the, you know, sort of um, that that content agnostic infrastructure. But, um, you know, it's not to say it can't happen in that, you know, we talked to and, you know, put this in the paper that Discord said, we'd be happy to open source our rules engine. Mm -hmm. The challenge they had, um, and I think, you know, what we hope will come out of this paper is, who would be the steward of that? Mm -hmm. Like they didn't just want to dump it onto GitHub and say, open source community figured it out, figure it out. Cause that that's, uh, you know, not, not useful or at least not optimal. Um, you know, why they would have to spend a year of development time to get it ready for open source. Um, they don't want to do that if they're just going to be dumped into a code base. So, you know, I think rules engines could be these workflow systems could be, we saw, you know, one of the people we interviewed, um, afterwards started to work on like, here's a workflow and reviewer interface system that they put up on GitHub and started to talk to people about. So it's definitely possible, but it's it's like with many things in open source, how are you going to um, give the, you know, fund the development right. and maintenance, at least at that threshold level, like some of it can be done just for free out of people's good spirits, but for long-term infrastructure, you probably need something. More. Yeah. And so, I mean, that gets to the question of, of the maintaining and support of this, right. Where it's like, you know, a lot of open source tool tools that are out there are, you know, not well supported monetarily. And, and oftentimes it's like a passion project of like one or two people. There's, I mean, maybe this is a, an unfair generalization, but I don't know if there's like that much passion behind like trust and safety tooling such that someone's just going to kind of do this as like, you know, I just need to provide the world better, better tools in this. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it's, it's useful to talk about the, the, you know, monetary support side of this, you know, what, what, what's your thinking there? Yeah. So, you know, how would this, how would this actually yeah. grow? How would it become more of a thing? What are the incentives? And so on the one hand, um, yes, you're right. Not necessarily the sexiest open source <laughs> problem. It's not developing the next stable diffusion right. and generative AI. On the other hand, you know, big communities of people work on um, security sure. tools that are open source uh, and, and also the securing of open source right. itself. Um, you know, large communities also un, underfunded, under-maintained area, but, you know, it exists. And you know, given the communities that have started to be fostered by the Trust and Safety Professionals Association, the Integrity Institute and others, um, one can imagine actually some amount of passion. Mm -hmm. In fact, it was through one of the, through these workshops where, you know, members from those uh, who participate in those orgs started to develop open source um, tools along these lines. Um, so I think it could happen there. And I think it could happen there in collaboration then with potentially some of the, the nonprofit or smaller players who want to, who would benefit from that. Um, you know, that could be whether it's a blue sky or the maintainers and the developers of Mastodon, um, an organization like new public or, you know, the digital public infrastructure initiative that Ethan Zuckerman, like these are the sorts of people who I think mm -hmm. have a shared interest. I think then the larger, like where would the money come from? Part of that could be foundations. That's who we were, 
you know, brought on to, mm -hmm. to do this work. Um, so there could be some foundation funding. But I also think there are other key providers to, to take stock up. So one is uh, larger commercial entities who might want to contribute. You know, first of all, they do in the open source space generally. Um, mm -hmm. In some ways, that's so that people are building on frameworks that then interoperate with the company systems and that that accrues to their benefit. Here, the, the benefit might be more indirect, but still significant, right? If um, I think part of the challenge for the larger companies in the space is bad stuff may happen on other people's platforms or services that they still get blamed for. So the health of the overall ecosystem is really key to their own economic benefit, right? They're just pure self-interest at that level. And so there is a, you know, and this is why the companies, I think, contribute to things like the Trust and Safety Professionals Association or the Digital Trust and Safety Partnership. Like, this is a collective challenge. It can't just be solved totally in silos. Um, even if companies want to differentiate on how good their own trust and safety is, they still need to think about the health of the overall ecosystem. Um, and also, like, you know, problems that start on one platform may spread onto theirs. So they, they have to be thinking in those terms. The other set of actors here I would call out are actually government. And, you know, you, you, you don't want government getting involved in sort of deploying, here's your Kate speech right. classifier. That is a Orwellian idea. On the other hand, right, particularly as government is thinking about putting in place rules, regulations, pressure to up Trust, your trust and safety game of various service providers. How do you do that in a way that doesn't, the government isn't creating a barrier to entry? How do you do that in a way that is actually making things safer? Where part of that is you do invest in that infrastructure layer. And, and here, you know, look, it's been a long time coming, but I'm, I'm um, encouraged by what I've seen the, you know, both in the US as well as in Europe, some of the attention put towards the need for government support for mm -hmm. open source and particularly government support for the securing of open source. Um, there's just, you know, a new roadmap was just put out by CISA in the last couple of weeks on that front. There is more funding going there. Germany has their sovereign tech fund that goes to um, open source and the security of open source. So there is some precedent. Um, and so you could imagine um, a forward thinking policymaker, you know, yes, there will be the continuing discussions of regulating trust and safety practices as such, accountability audits and so on and so forth. But what about policymakers saying, hey, we're going to invest in making it easy for everybody to build safety tools, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, another example to think about is think about the way that governments invested in making uh, encrypted communications available to people in China and other oppressive regimes and, and invested in encryption systems. Now, not all governments are so good about encryption policy these days, but it's an example of like the government invests in security and safety. So they could do it here too. Interesting. Um, a couple different questions. Uh, one is, I mean, you sort of mentioned uh, Mastodon and blue sky and I mentioned them earlier on. And like, there are definitely concerns about like, the trust and safety tooling that's happening there. Um, you know, we've seen in the, the Macedon space, you know, a few companies have gotten involved. Um, Mozilla sort of most prominently has said that they're sort of, you know, they're trying to 
build kind of a safe version of of Mastodon. And it sounds like to me they're sort of interested, you know, it, it sort of fits with Mozilla's kind of mission in the world and and that they're looking at the trust and safety tooling side of that as a part of what they're doing. Um, yeah. Do you think there's some some sort of element of, of that where you have like you know companies that are embracing you know ActivityPub um, and potentially AT Protocol that they'll sort of uh, come in and potentially open source some of their tools? Yeah, I think that's that's a, that's a natural mm-hmm. fit. I mean, it's those folks who are already thinking of how do we um, empower more people to. Uh, you know, form these sorts of systems, build community, and as such, then engage in trust and safety practices, right? Whether you're running a Mastodon instance or whatever, you need this sort of thing. So I think that that is the most natural fit. And it, it won't, it can't just be a carbon copy. Um, you know, I think one of the things that came up in our research and interviews is, um, you know, you couldn't just sort of flip a switch necessarily and give everybody access to, um, you know, Microsoft photo DNA system for detecting child sexual abuse mm-hmm. material. Um, it, you know, that doesn't, it's not fit for purpose right. in that, in that way. W- what would that have to look like? Um, but also like how, how would you, the, the user interface for, you know, a major centralized platform wouldn't necessarily be the same in utility as for somebody running a Mastodon instance. Um, and, you know, what we heard was the tools in that space and the decentralized service space pretty, rudimentary it's also you know be clear not just for the sort of social media social networking you know when it comes to the interplanetary file system and their distributed file storage issue for them they've developed an optional hash list for storage providers to facilitate blocking of material they they have other sorts of tools of that sort but it's at a much much more rudimentary stage um so yeah I, i think that would be an ideal place to um you know for it'll be some collective action. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's interesting. I mean, like you mentioned sort of the IPFS stuff and, and I've talked to some folks who were working on that and thinking about that. And it was interesting to me because you sort of consider, right. You, you understand that like for various important reasons that sort of developed in a, in an idea of like, you know, censorship resistant because part of the idea is to be able to, for, you know, activists and, and um, you know, you know, people under threat to be able to know that they can post something and uh, or or store something and know that it's not going to be disappeared by the government, but that then presents a problem on the trust and safety side. It's like, how do you balance those things? Are really really interesting and different different kinds of challenges. Um, so one, I, I want to go in a slightly different direction, and we can sort of probably wrap up the conversation around this. Um, you know, it's it's throughout this discussion it's permeated a few times uh, without going directly into it, the question of AI, um, which, you know, I think is becoming increasingly important in, in this space. Um, you know, open AI recently announced, you know, the, the, the use of, of open AI as a tool in trust and safety. And there are questions about, you know, how useful that is, but people who've tested it seem to say that it, it's effective. I'm, I'm sort of, fascinated now by the idea of how AI is really going to play into the trust and safety space. Now, it's noting, like, it's been something that's been talked about for years, but mostly, I think, as as aspirational more than reality. 
Um, and yet now we're beginning to see just as, you know, the generative AI space is, is suddenly showing like massive leaps towards what we were promised for, for decades. You know, it's beginning to look like maybe in the in the trust and safety side, you know, what used to be a joke, the idea that like, oh, AI would just solve this problem that, oh, if you just throw enough AI at it, it'll figure out how to handle these things. I'm still not convinced that's ever going to be the case, that you're really going to get there. But clearly... AI tools are an increasing part of, of trust and safety. How do you think that fits into the, the open source question here? Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. We, we explored that as well as a couple other um, emerging sort of issues uh, we could touch on. You know, with AI, we saw in our research, there is, as you said, um, the ability of AI to, like open AI to develop classifiers to help identify harmful mm -hmm. outputs. Um, and so you can think about this as really accelerating the development of the automatic classification systems that already exist, just becomes much easier to do it. That's complemented by the ability to train on smaller data sets with high fidelity to create synthetic data sets and then label those data sets more, more quickly. Um, so all that leads to sort of the faster and easier detection of automated detection processes. Mm -hmm. Um that doesn't speak to, you know, no matter how good that gets, it still doesn't speak to the other aspects of um, the sort of the, the process of trust and safety and trust and safety tooling, which is to say, you still may want, no matter how good your classifier is, want to do human right. review to tailor it to the specific circumstances and context, you know, all the things that, yes, automated systems have gotten better at in the last 10, 15 years because of machine learning, but they are not perfect at. And, and that that doesn't change magically because of AI. What does change is that it may be easier for smaller entities to more quickly and cheaply develop those classifiers, train those classifiers based on their data, maybe with fewer people, um, but it doesn't get rid of the other parts of right. the tooling, the interface, the enforcement systems, the logging, the transparency, all of that, where there also might be, um, you know, some uh, impact though along those other parts of the, the chain is the way you could use um, generative AI, not just to sort of detect, but to explain enforcement yeah. decisions, both to the system operator, but to the user. Um, and, you know, we definitely heard, uh, I guess, you know, I don't mean to be uncharitable, but sort of speculation about how good it could get there. Some people were very confident it will be better than what could, a human could right. produce. Um, I, I don't think the evidence is quite there, but you could certainly, you know, imagine that sort of situation of giving a more particularized um, insight to the user of why a decision was reached. Again, still need the rest of the tooling pipeline. So I'd say um, complementary, but doesn't sort of doesn't change the need for the, the other sort of content agnostic parts of the, of the chain. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think there's also, of course, um, that, you know, like people talk, the, the ability to then synthesize harmful content, whether it's deep fakes or anything else at scale. Um, you know, sure. That, that is a concern. I tend to think the concern isn't at this point, whether it's easy to generate um, harmful content, it's how it gets, distributed, accessed, found. Um, so the fact that it is now cheaper with generative AI to produce a deep fake, I'm not sure how much that is going to be, but there was definitely discussion 
um, in our you know interviews and our workshops uh, about that um, and about how then AI could be used to combat it to then train detection tools and build reference implementations along those lines. Um, you know that dovetailed with issues we talked about around also extended reality and metaverse technologies where you know, training for mm-hmm. new types of media objects, 3D renderings and the like. Um, the one other thing I'll say, just because I, I know that you write about it a lot, a lot of your uh, readers then I'm sure pay attention to it, is what's going around around age verification and age assurance. Like mm-hmm. putting aside the whole regulatory conversation, a lot of companies, right. service providers do this. They want to divide up their service in ways that are age appropriate. Um, those are also the sorts of tools where there's a big barrier to entry, right? If you have to go and pay, yes. um, you know, say you want to use one of those face ID systems, it's not necessarily cheap, um, particularly for a smaller provider. Um, you could imagine some of this being open source. There are, you can look on, again, on GitHub and find age inference um, mm-hmm. tools um, that, that you can deploy. Another thing to think about is openness in the sense of interoperability. So, you know, they experimented with this in Europe as part of a government-funded program of a system where if you are age-assured on one website, you get a token on your computer that then when you go to other websites, they see, ah, they've already, they already have this token. I don't need to check them again. So that you're not, you know, that also right. that decreases the cost, both for the service provider, the time cost for the user, and so on and so forth. Um, so I think putting aside sort of when and how exactly age inference or age estimation or age verification ought to be used. Um, there's a, there is a role for open source in making it easier for people who feel like it's a value add for their platform. Yeah, no. And, 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 you know, again, you, you address all this in the, in the paper, um, which is, which is definitely worth, worth reading. The, the one, the one other thing that I'll, I'll mention also um, we already talked a little bit about, you know, Mastodon and, and Blue Sky. Um, I do think there there could be something interesting there too. And, and again, you do get into this a little bit in the paper. Um, is a, a, around like the way we've we've historically thought about trust and safety tooling is always like centralized control of a by a by a single provider. It's like it is you know Google's responsibility to do this or Facebook's responsibility to do this. And as we're seeing, you know, in in the Mastodon world, it's um, you know it, it's sort of the that version, but but miniaturized, right? I mean, because you have sort of these like smaller federated players and and basically each one acts like a little mini you know whatever and therefore some of that tooling matches i'm sort of curious to see how it plays out with like the 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 vision of blue sky where i really think they're looking much more not just at like each federated instance doing their own trust and safety but decentralizing the trust and safety itself in many ways and enabling different users to put in place different things. And then even to take it further is like, you know, some of the more experimental stuff like Noster, um, which is sort of fascinating to watch where there are, you know, some, I don't think they, the people who are working on Noster really 
have really thought this through or, or care, even though they should. Um, but they're already talking about sort of like decentralized trust and safety things around like, should the relay, should the clients do it? Should the, you know, user controls and all that kind of stuff. I think that's a really interesting space, but, but it's going to take really, really different thinking and skill sets than the, the centralized trust and safety tooling. Yes, I, I totally agree. And I think, um, I think, yeah, that's one of the big the needs and also sort of open questions, I think, of these more decentralized uh, service providers, um, of how, how that will manifest, how it will look different. And can you get enough, like, can you get enough utility that then you really do end up right. with a proliferation? Or do you just end up with, sure, blue sky is decentralized, but... It's a power law, and most of the users are concentrated on a single instance. Or you know, same thing with Mastodon, right? right? And and yep. uh, you know, I'm not sure that, but the, the only way we might have it be more competitive, vibrant, dynamic is if these tools get built. Otherwise, it's a surety that um, you know that, that right. it'll be it'll <laughs> yes. still be relatively centralized. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely makes sense. Anyways, this is, it's, a, it's a really interesting discussion um, and lots of stuff to think about and certainly to follow in the space. I think it'll be kind of really important to the to the future of, of trust and safety and how it works. So definitely something to follow. Um, again, uh, there's there's this the paper is is an annex to this uh a task force report we'll, we'll link to it in the show notes uh but derek thanks thanks so much for for coming on the podcast and talking about it thanks for having me pleasure to be here and thank you everyone for listening and we'll be back next week to grab a shovel and dig